Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bible this morning, you can turn there. You'll be able to read along the screen, or you can grab a Bible under your, your, your pew there. If you don't have a Bible, please just take one of the Bibles out of here. We've got more. You can just take one. We'll, we'll gladly give that to you. We, just, we want you to be able to read a Bible during the week. So uh, follow along with me, if you will. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children... Those children are, mu- are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it, is, it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us, who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has set the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now, you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. This morning we are continuing our year-long series in the book of Galatians. Not quite year-long, it's probably about six months long. We're looking at the book of Galatians. We're going all the way through it. We're going we're to talk about every verse of Galatians. Right now we're in chapter 4, the beginning part. And Paul here picks up again where we left off in chapter 3 last week. He is continuing his argument that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He is continuing his, his argument that all of us, free person, Slave, male, female, Jew, Greek, sinner, religious person, all of us, every one of us needs Jesus. This morning's passage is trying to illustrate that idea that while the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians have come from very different starting points, Both are to inherit the same thing. It's like a person who comes to church on Sunday morning in a Ferrari. I wouldn't want them to come in a Ferrari to our church because there's gravel down there, right? But if they come in a Ferrari or a helicopter to our church, or somebody comes to church and say, a 2011 Toyota Sienna, who which just recently got smashed in the back and is totaled out, and um, now ser- that person is now searching for a new vehicle, right? Maybe that's the car that you drive. Maybe you don't have a car at all. Maybe you are walking it, and that's your, your lot in life. You're just trying to hoof it everywhere. And you say it's for, you know, health, but really you just don't have a car that's running, right? 
It doesn't matter what kind of person you are, or what kind of circumstance you come in. When you come here to church, you may come, we all may come from different starting points. We all may come from different points of the journey. We all may come from different backgrounds. Yet, all of us, hopefully, are after the same thing. We all want connection with the Heavenly Father. We all want connection and to meet with Jesus. I hope that is what we are all searching for this morning. I hope that is what our end goal is this morning. Paul, in the beginning of chapter 4, is trying to do two things with the idea that he just shared in chapter 3, that all who believe in Jesus are now adopted sons and daughters who will receive a great inheritance. So those two things that he is trying to, to, to tell the church in Galatia, trying to get them to understand, is that one, all of them are a part of God's new exodus. You guys know Exodus? Right? Where God led his people from slavery to the promised land, right? That's the story of the Exodus. And that all of us, every one of us, them back then, us now, and our kids and children and grandkids in the future are all after this Exodus that Jesus is leading. The great and final act of redemption accomplished in Jesus by the Spirit. And, and the second thing that Paul is trying to do is to get that both the Jews and the Gentiles, that they were both on the same journey. No matter whether they were driving a Ferrari or they were just hoofing it around or they had an old beaten up, totaled out Toyota Sienna, it doesn't matter. They're all searching and striving for the same thing. And that they were all slaves and that Jesus is making them, setting them on their way to faith and freedom. I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia to Evelyn, and uh, we just finished The Horse and His Boy. Now this is, for me, um, I, I dropped my wife and kids off at, at the airport in, on Wednesday to go to New York for a couple weeks, and like, I was like day four, and I'm like, um, you guys can come home anytime. Um, I've been fishing once, but, you know, I, I'd, I'd gladly trade, trade all that away to, to hang out with my family. But that's okay. That's okay. We'll, be, we'll get over it. Anyway, so I've been reading The Horse and His Boy, and we just finished it. And th the story goes something like this. There was a boy, his name was Shasta, and uh, he is a slave. Really? He's been adopted. He, uh, he's got a wicked, wicked father. And uh, comes to find out that actually this father actually bought him as a slave. And, and so the, it's about his adventures of him running away from his dad, his evil father, and going to Narnia, the land of the lion, the land of the talking animals. So he's on his way to Narnia, and all along the way, as he gets closer and closer to Narnia, people keep misidentifying who he is. They keep calling him Corin. He's like, I, I don't know who Corin is. I'm Shasta. He goes, no, you're Corin. 
Well, come to find out, I don't want to ruin the book for you, but it is like, it was written like in the 50s, so if you can't, I mean, if you haven't read it by now, it's okay. So anyway, so, so it turns out that Cor, well, Corin is actually Shasta's brother, you find out the end of the book, and Shasta's name isn't Shasta, it's actually Cor, so it's Cor and Corin, and Cor was captured from the kingdom of Narnia and, and sold into slavery. And Kor is actually the firstborn son of King Loon, the king of Narnia. And so all this story has happened, and, and he, Shasta's grown up with this mean dad, and, and come to find out that he's actually a prince. And so, of course... This, this book has everything, right? It's got Narnia, it's got talking animals, it's got horses. So Evelyn's like, giddy up, right? But this whole time is kind of weaving this, this idea, and it's really talking about our passage today. C.S. Lewis was brilliant that way. And it's really talking about our passage today. About how we are all sons and daughters of a king. And that when we are brought into the fold, that that king gives us an inheritance. Well, Kor's inheritance was he became the king of Narnia. He went from being a, a beggar, slave boy to a king. And here's the deal, folks. All of us, when we are adopted into the family of God, are all princes and princesses of the eternal mighty king. And that we someday will get to help that great king restore this world to what it should be. And in fact, our jobs on earth today is to restore the, this, this world and these people to what the king had in mind for it all along. Our job isn't to be wait for heaven. Whoa. Our job isn't to wait for heaven and hope and, and think, man, life will be great then. Our job, folks, is that once we know Jesus is to be getting about his business now, our beginning about his business today, and helping people and creation be restored to where they should be. That is our job. What Paul is trying to tell the church of Galatia is that they were all slaves. They were all on the same boat, maybe from different circumstances, maybe from different backgrounds, but all of them had the same goal. And they all needed the same thing. They all needed a Savior. They all needed a Messiah that would bring them from their bondage into a promised land. Jesus, of course, was that Messiah. That Jesus represented a better Moses. You know Moses, the pillar of the Jewish faith. This guy that, they, that, that was, was just, just raised up on this pedestal. 
And Paul is saying, that man was a great man, but he was just a glimpse of Jesus. Of Jesus. A fuzzy picture of Jesus. The one to come. So, to drive this home, N.T. Wright says this passage is full of the language of Exodus. God called Moses to lead Israel out of slavery in, uh, in Egypt into freedom. To inherit the promised land. After a long period of waiting, already predicted in Genesis 15, the time of fulfillment came. God sent Moses to redeem his people, that is, to purchase their freedom from slavery. This was also to demonstrate that as Moses said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Freedom was secured through Passover with the sacrifice of the lambs and the slaying of Egypt's firstborn. Then when the people had left Egypt, they came to Sinai 40 days after Passover, and they were given the laws as their guide through the wilderness to their inheritance. That is a story that every Jewish person knew and knows, and that forms the foundation for a great many Jewish writings, both ancient and modern. So Paul takes that, he takes that idea, he takes the idea of the Exodus and Moses and all that, and he fills what he is saying in chapter 4 with that type of language, Exodus language, to point out that now a new Passover has come. And just like Kor, or Shasta, in our story, had been taken from being a slave to a cruel and mean father to receiving and becoming part of a royal family and being given a royal inheritance and the title of prince and then the king, now the church of Galatia, both Jew and Gentile, were a part of a royal family and they too were being given an inheritance and a title through Jesus Christ. Not that of an earthly prince, but that of a son or daughter to the king of the universe, the creator of everything. So the rest of this morning, I just want to look at verses 4 through 7 and make some, some observations that I see in this text and ultimately what that means for us. So number one, Jesus came at the right time. Second half of, of verse 3 and verse 4, listen. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. So you remember last week I talked about how the law was a placeholder. I don't know if you guys remember that, but the law was a placeholder. That God promised Abraham like 400 years before the law came, that help was coming, that relief was coming, that a way was coming. Well, 400 years later, Jesus, the Messiah, still isn't here yet. And people are floundering, and they're having trouble. And so what does God do? Well, God sends Moses to free his people. He brings them out of the promised land, out into freedom, they go to Mount Sinai, and you guys know the Charlton Heston version of this, right? Moses goes up for 40 days. God writes these tablets, 
Which is interesting because would it really take God 40 days to write tablets? I mean, seriously. But anyway, 40 days is a pretty awesome number. 40 days. Meanwhile, the people are growing restless and they're like, God, Moses is dead. Give us something else. So they start worshiping a gold calf, like the number one no-no, right? So they start worshiping a gold calf. Moses comes down. He's like on fire. Like his, his, I mean, he had to look crazy, right? He's like lit up, and he's like, he's been in the presence of God. He's got these two giant tablets, and he looks over his people, and they are like worshiping a cow, and he's like, and what does he do? Smashes those tablets and goes, all right, Burn all this gold and you're going to drink it, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's go time. Moses is ticked. Anyway, fast forward. God, in his great mercy and love, forgives the people. Moses goes back up, gets tablets again, comes back down, and he's given the law. Now, that law was a placeholder. It was something to, 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 to just hold the, the, the line until Jesus came. It was a stopgap. And a peculiar thing happened, though, along the way. The leaders of God's people began adding to and making God's ideas much more complex, much harder to actually live and attain. God knew that in 1,500 years, his people had messed it up. It took 1,500 years from the giving of the law to Jesus. And in that time, they took the Ten Commandments and made it into over 600. And they were so focused on the law and putting everyone in, under a microscope that they weren't able to see the signs, they weren't able to see Jesus when he showed up because they were too busy staring into a microscope and making sure that every person was doing the right, or right thing. And so much so that nobody could live up to the laws. They missed that the Messiah came. They missed that Jesus was here. The New Living translates, translates that into when the right time came. Which is, I think is a good idea. It captures the idea of what Paul is going after here. But the literal translation of verse 4 is when the time of fulfilling came. Which I think is also amazing. God knew the exact right time, the best time to fulfill His promise, to send the Messiah, to send Jesus. He knew the right time. He knew the perfect time. He knew it. You guys remember the book of Esther? I know that you, some of you ladies should know it really well. You guys spent like three months studying it, right? That is one of the best mic drop moments in the entire Bible, right? It is one of my favorite moments in the whole Bible, right? Mordecai is talking to Esther. You guys get this? You guys remember, anybody remember this? He, so Mordecai is talking to Esther, and Mordecai's like, look, you have to talk to your husband, and you have to tell the king that, that his, you're going to die. All of us are going to die. This is a bad deal. Help us. And Esther says, I don't want to help you. Because if I go and approach the king without his permission, he has the ability to just kill me right there. 
and I'm scared to do this. Mic drop moment, right? What does Mordecai say? Mordecai says, Esther, how do you know that God hasn't put you here at this time in history for such a time as this? Mic drop. And what does Esther do? You guys know. Esther's like, all right. I guess if I die, I die, but I'm going. My wife is really good at mic drop moments. God bless her soul. She's learned that, like, I'm, 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 I'm thick-headed and pig-headed, so, like, the best way to me is not to, like, have an argument with me. The best way to me is for me to, for her to have a mic drop moment, for, for her to say why I'm wrong about something, and then just drop the mic and let, let, let me go. And you know what usually happens? Uh, about 12 hours later, maybe a day later, I'm like, yeah, she's probably right. It's the exact same thing that Mordecai did. It's the exact same thing that Paul is trying to do here. Guys, listen. God knew the right time. For such a time as this, to me, sounds like when the right time came. And when Paul said it, everyone who's reading it or hearing it, all of them would be reminded of all the times that God came at just the right time. At just the right time, he had intervened in history for his people. When the plagues and with the parting of the Red Sea, with the battle of Jericho, with the story of Esther, and on and on and on, God's timing, while sometimes to us may seem late or early, it never is. God has shown his people over and over again that his timing is true, his timing is perfect. His timing is, exact, his timing is exactly what it should be. He always came through and comes through for his people at exactly the right time. He is God. There could be no other way. And today, this is still true. It's true. All of it. God is for us, not against us. He sent Jesus at the perfect time for them, and it is a perfect time for us. Emmanuel. I know it's six months past Christmas, right? But Emmanuel. What does that mean? Does anybody remember? God with us. Jesus made his way here. He made his way here at the perfect time in history. He was promising that God is with us and he will never leave us again. Number two, Jesus bought us freedom. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. Verse 5. I know. How did I get this point here in Galatians on the 4th of July when we celebrate freedom? I don't know actually how I did that. The Holy Spirit must have done that. Right? We all know, of course, that freedom wasn't invented in 1776. Right? You know that, right? 
Freedom isn't an idea that just came about in 1776. No. The founding fathers saw freedom as one of the biggest tenets of being a human. Freedom was a God-given right that should be given to every person. Well, where did that idea come from? Well, it was from God himself. It was God's idea of what his children should be. Notice freedom, though, wasn't cheap, right? Notice verse 5 doesn't say God sent Jesus to announce freedom for us. No, God sent Jesus to what? Buy freedom for us. We must remember that it cost, not money, but it cost the life of God's only son. This weekend we celebrate freedom as well. Freedom from tyranny and from the unjust rule from England. Remember that wasn't cheap though. That wasn't cheap. There was much bloodshed for our country to be free. Historians think that some 30,000 Americans gave their lives as they separated from England. Now listen, there weren't millions and millions and millions of Americans like there are now. 30,000 was significant. That wasn't the only time where we fought for freedom. There was a much more egregious, a much more dark time in our nation where we, when we fought for freedom. And that was actually against ourselves. The Civil War, our bloodiest war, was with ourselves. Roughly 2% of the population, an estimated 620,000 men lost their lives in the line of duty. If you were to take that as a population of today's, a percentage of the population of today, the toll would have been as high as 6 million Americans gave their lives in the Civil War. The cost of freedom in the Revolutionary War wasn't cheap. In the Civil War, definitely not cheap. However, neither of those compare in the least to the price of what God paid to set us spiritually free. That price was nails. Nails in his hands, nails in his feet, and ultimately the death of his own son, the Savior of the world. That was the cost. That was the price that Jesus paid. Number three, God has adopted us into his family. Second half of verse five and and six and seven. So that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Finally, what Paul is saying here is that the same thing he has been communicating through this whole letter, that because of Jesus and nothing else, God has adopted us as his children. Now listen, this isn't the story of Cinderella. God doesn't play favorites. God's not saying, okay, Sobek, you kind of made it in, but not, uh, you was really iffy. So why don't you go stand over there in the corner and be good, 
while me and the good kid, other kids are going to, we're going to do stuff, right? That's not what God says. That's not what God says at all. God is saying this. Look at the second half of verse 7. God's not saying, go Sobek, go stand over there in the corner. But he's saying, Sobek, because you are now part of my family. You are now part of a royal family. You are now a full heir. You now get the full inheritance. Whether you made it into my family by the skin of your teeth or not. And that's such a good reminder for us. I think that sometimes we are tempted to think, yeah, I'm a Christian. I get to have a relationship with Jesus. And I get to be a part of God's kingdom. But I don't really deserve it. I'm just going to sit over here and kind of keep quiet so that maybe God won't notice that I'm here and he'll let me stay. Does anybody ever feel like that? Church, can I tell you something? That is a lie from the pit of hell. Are you hearing me? That is a lie. Listen. Either we are part of God's family or we're not. It isn't graded with a letter grade. It's a pass-fail test. We're either in or we're not. If you are a member of God's family, you receive everything that comes with it. And if you aren't a part of God's family, well, then you receive everything that comes with that. Bowen Christian Church, we must start to see ourselves as God sees us, as His children. Everyone that is in Jesus this morning that calls themselves a follower or a disciple, I want you to understand something. You are God's child. Not a stepkid. Not an afterthought. You are God's child. This morning, we're going to say this. We're going to practice this. I'm going to say, I am, and then you will answer, God's child. All right? We can all do it together. I am. That did not sound like you believe it. I am. I am. I am. You are free. free indeed because of Jesus do you hear me you are God's child you are an heir you are royalty you are worth something you are Jesus bought it for you and the cost is great but it's paid Grab on. Hold on. Everyone that is in Jesus this morning, you are free. Look at verse 6. And because we are children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. The language there is not formal. The language there is familial. Like saying, Dad. Not father. Some people say it's like saying daddy. Like my daughter calls me. We get to have that relationship with the creator of the universe. 
when I was on the Bob Russell retreat, I heard, I, I'd heard the story before from a different perspective, like from, from the other side. So, but Bob told the story, and I, I just wanted to hear it, and I was amazed by it. So Bob Russell, Southeast Christian Church, 25,000 people church that he, he, grew, up, he grew into, 25,000 people. God grew it, whatever. Anyway, he's one of our biggest church, well, our, the biggest Christian church in America, Bob Russell had that church. Anyway, they're 30, he retired, they're 37,000 people now, it's massive. For years and years and years, Bob Russell said, listen, if you are my, if you are my staff, we are going to honor God. And so because of that, if you are on staff, I expect you to wear a, uh, a button-down shirt, a tie, and a jacket when you're on stage. And for years and years and years, Bob Russell had this rule. And for years and years and years, the rest of the staff was like, oh my gosh, like, oh, suit, jacket, like, this is crazy. He's like, and they're like, um, Bob, we're like 25,000 people. We're trying to reach all these young families. Like, wearing a suit or a jacket is not. And, and he held that line forever until a young whippersnapper named Ken Eidelman came on staff. And Ken Eidelman has taken over to now he's in charge. Bob passed it on, right? But Ken Eidelman comes in and he says, closes his office door and says, hey, Bob, can I talk to you about this dress code thing? And Bob's like, all right. So, he, you know, Bob is like getting ready. He's getting, he's, you know, he's, he's already argued this, so he's blue in the face. He's got, so he's got every answer. And he says, he says, all right, Kyle, what, what do you have to say? What, what, what do you want to talk about? He's like, well, I just, I just have a problem. He goes, I, we're trying to reach all these young families, all these new people, like all these people are coming in, and I, I don't feel comfortable wearing a suit. I don't feel comfortable wearing a jacket. I don't feel comfortable wearing a tie. Like, I just, I just can't have a problem with it. He says, well, Kyle, don't you think, Kyle, that if you were going to go see the President of the United States, that you would not wear jeans and a shirt, but instead you would wear a suit and a freshly clean, freshly pressed, nice suit and, and pay him your ultimate honor and respect. Kyle's like, yeah, I would. And then Bob goes, except for then, that little guy, he turned it on me. He said, unless the President of the United States was my dad. He said, Bob, Bob said, I just sat back in my chair and I said, but he didn't say anything. He didn't have an answer. The next Sunday, the dress code was off and they could wear what they were comfortable in. I want you to understand something here. We have a dad that is more powerful than the President of the United States, the most powerful man in the world. But he's still our dad. And we have the ability and the freedom bought for and paid for by, with, for by Christ to approach him and call him dad. 
Isn't that good news? I think it is.